We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I would like you to look at this text that uh, Charlie read to you in Mark, end of chapter 8. This is one of the most, not misunderstood, but ununderstood aspects of the ministry of Jesus. If I were to ask you, what is the purpose of the transfiguration? Why did Jesus go up on a mountain and God kind of unzip his uh, human suit and let you look upon his glory and God speak and Elijah and Moses appear to him? What was the purpose of this light show? Three guys go up on mountains and see God, Moses, Elijah, and Christ. Why? Why does God let him do that? Well, this has got some good lessons for us. If you'll look in chapter 8 of Mark, you see where the door closes uh, in verse 31. He warned them to tell no one about him. The door closes on Israel. Because in verse 27, 28, and 29, we are doing a new thing in the earth. God audibles. He calls an audible. He always knew he was going to call it, but now he makes it known. A word is mentioned in 27, 28, and 29 that is not mentioned anywhere else prior to this in the Bible. It is the word church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. On this rock, the confession of Christ, I, Jesus, will build my ecclesia. Sometimes in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is translated as mob of just a whole bunch of people that come together, that he is going to summon from the four winds his elect, from Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, freeman, every kind of person, and they're going to join together into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the priest of God, the temple of God, the, the church, that's you and I. And so he's going to do a whole new thing. I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, we had a guy named Tony Evans. Do you remember Tony Evans? He was preaching one time, and uh, he was talking about the church. And he said, let me tell you the way it is. He said, and you'll have to, when I use this illustration, a lot of you were born way after the participants of this illustration. Okay. He says, uh, Roger Staubach drops back to pass. Okay, a few of you. And he looks way down the field for Drew Pearson, <laughs> who's running a fly pattern just as fast as he can. And he's going to go back and he's going to throw this thing 70 yards down the field. He had a touchdown and we're going to score. But as Roger drops back, he notices something. There is a satanic occurrence. It's called a blitz. <laughs> that here comes an outside linebacker unbeknownst to him. And the outside linebackers are all from dysfunctional families. Trust me, that's the only way, that's the prereq for being an outside. You have to hate your mother. Okay. And here comes an outside linebacker and he looks down the field for this play that he called in the huddle. But he sees that the play is going to be a failure because Satan is about to get to him. And so what he does is he checks off and he turns and over there in the flat is, uh, who was there before Emmett Smith? Tony Dorsett. And he turns to Tony Dorsett 
And just before he gets hit, are you getting this sign, girl? Okay, here we go. <laughs> he turns to his left and he drops off a little pass to Tony Dorsett. And Tony Dorsett, as plan B, does what plan A was not allowed to do. He said, that is a study of the church. That God was going to throw deep and have a nation receive him and exalt him in all the earth. And that nation would be Israel. But here came a satanic blitz called the cross. And yet he turns and he dumps the ball off to Tony Dorsett. And that is the church. And Tony Dorsett does what Drew didn't have to do because he is so quick. And he said, you and I are Tony Dorsett. That we are the audible. That what we knew was going to happen, but it had to occur before you could see it develop. And that's the church. I've been rejected, but my cross is about to become the foundation of a new people, the church. And I'm about to fire the Pharisees and I'm about to elect you guys. You're going to be the stones of this foundation. I'll be the corner, you'll be the stones, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. You, the apostles, are going to write the beliefs and the rules. And so that is the ultimate audible in the Bible right there. Now, you and I look at it and it makes sense. If you were Peter, you're a two-dimensional man with a three-dimensional Savior who sees time different than we do. And so in verse 30, after the announcement of this brand new people that's to come, i.e. you and I, verse 30, he shuts the door on Israel. They have rejected his, his words. They have rejected his mighty works. They have rejected his call to repentance. He has taken a remnant out of them to begin with. And now he's going to go to the lowly of Israel and to, the, and to the entire world. And in verse 31, a new path is opened. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, Messiah, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, priests, and scribes, Israel, be killed, and after three days, rise again. The path is made clear from here on. Boys, I'm about to be tortured and I'm about to die and to be rejected by the nation. You and I understand that. We understand it and celebrate it every Easter. These guys understood it later. Peter talked about the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished the blood of Christ. To we who believe he is precious. But Peter here says, this will never happen to you. Incidentally, one of the great proofs of the validity of the divinity of Christianity is that the original spokesman of Christianity didn't believe in it. Did y'all understand what I just said? It was over Peter's head. It was over Thomas's head. It was over John's head. God's ways are lofty and above us. Even these guys could not figure it out. And so, he warned them to tell no one. Verse 31, I'm going to die. 32, he stated it plainly. No more allegorical speech. Someday the bridegroom will be taken away. And then you'll weep. 
tear down this temple three days, I'll rise it up. As Noah, uh, Jonah spent three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three nights in the earth. See, he would speak allegorically about his death. But in verse 32, he states the matter, what's your Bible say? Plainly, plain speech, I'm about to die. Peter, with his newfound authority, takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never rebuke men who rise from the dead. It's a, it's a failing institution. Probably, he, he says, do, do you really think after we've come this far, God's going to let you die? Do you really think that your own people are going to kill you? Do you really think, Jesus, that we who surround you are going to let this happen to you? Do you really believe that all the crowd that has followed you, that you've fed, is going to let this happen to you? Jesus, you've got to have greater faith than this. Okay. And so in verse 33, but turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, after being called, you know, blessed art thou, now you're called Satan. Life's tough when you're Simon Peter, you know. Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind, not setting your mind on God's interests but upon man's, which simply means you're not looking at the way of obedience, the narrow way that few there be that follow. You're looking at broad is the path of following just what is easy for you and not being willing to, to obey the will of God. And he says, Peter, in verse 34, not only do I have to die, but look at verse 34 and think about if you're the disciples. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Wow. In other words, Peter, not only do I have to die, that this is God's will. This is God's interest that I die. Not only do I have to die, but you have to die too. And not only, Peter, do you have to die, but all God's children are going to have to be willing to die. Because in this period between my death, look at verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he What's your word? And he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Question, does he die or does he come and rule? Which is it? It's both. With a period in between where there is an adulterous and rebellious generation of humans where a select group of them called the church will follow Jesus. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do the big three. You're going to have to say no to what you think is best for you. There are a lot of cultures where if you put your trust in Christ and are baptized, that you go on the list. So you have got to say no to yourself. And then you're going to have to take up your cross. That meant a lot to a Jew. Romans were not crucified. Jews are crucified. They're seen as enemies of the state. 
And so you're going to have to follow, you're going to have to say no to what is advantageous to you. And then you're going to have to be seen as an enemy of the state. And across the board in the history of our faith, this is what happens. You are seen as an enemy. Remember what Pharaoh thought of the Jews in his day? They're going to get too many rise up against us. Let's act wisely and destroy them. Smart says to get rid of the Christians. Can that ever happen? We're going to cancel culture. We're going to get rid of Christianity and get rid of the Christian worldview and get rid of Christ and get rid of the Bible. Uh, and so you're going to have to take up the cross. And that is where you are seen. Uh, the state sees you as having a sovereign above it, and it doesn't like to have you out there. Religiously, you're someone who says that all religion is worthless. God affects salvation himself by the death of Christ. And then philosophically, you're saying we don't need a means by reason to attain to ultimate truth. Truth is made known to us by God, not by reason, but by divine revelation. And to the three great substrata of society, government, religion, education, and philosophy, you're saying we don't need it, we have Jesus. Do you think that will be received well? No, it will not. Haman said in the book of Esther, there's a people here that they're not like our people and their laws are not like our laws. It is not in the king's best interest to let them continue. Let's get rid of them. And we'll start with Mordecai. And so this is what it takes to become a Christian. You say no to you. I'll tell you a great story. Who was the, you remember, don't be embarrassed, Larry Flint, the publisher, what was it? Penthouse played with something filthy, I forget. What was he? Penthouse? Hustler, I don't know my porn. What? Like I should have. Hustler Magazine. He does Hustler Magazine. Remember he had his alleged religious experience? Unquote. And uh, he says to his wife, I've just found Jesus. And his wife says, you just lost $20 million. The wife understood Christianity better than he did. You can't have this magazine and Jesus. One of them's got to go. I just found Jesus. You just lost $20 million. The wife understood the faith. And that's what he says here. If you're going to become a Christian, you've got to say no to you. And then you've got to pick up my cross and be seen as an enemy of the state. Like it says in Hebrews, let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And then you have to follow me. It's not merely a decision. It's a decision to begin a lifestyle. Are you with me? Those are powerful verses. And so he has given you here a complete meta-narrative of the next 20 centuries. I'm going to die. My people are going to follow me and they're going to die. But I'm coming back. And there's going to be recompense and there's going to be justice. There's the first and the second coming and all that takes place in the valley between. He said that in about five sentences. Wow. I would agree with those temple guards. Never a man spake as this man. Well, in uh, verse oh, 35 these paths of following Christ are not, are someday going to come to an end. Whoever wishes to save his life, meaning 
I will reject the gospel so I won't be ostracized. Well, then you're going to lose it. And to the guy who loses his life for my sake, I will trust Christ, but I realize that it may cost me my career and even my, my breath someday. I will lose it. In verse 36, he states that uh, the choice is obvious. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You want to save your physical life? Good. It's going to cost you your soul. Even if you could be king of the earth, it's a bad choice because you will lose everything because of that decision. Incidentally, is there a fellow in the Bible that has offered the kingdoms of the world and turns it down to do the will of God? Who are we talking about? Jesus. So can a man give up his life, turn his back on all of man's kingdoms and greatness simply to obey God? It's been done. It's been done. Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so someday the decisions are going to come to an end. And we will find out who lives and who dies. There's an old story you may have heard about the, the guy that becomes a Christian over in Wales. And he got made fun of for believing in the supernatural. He said, do you really believe the Bible? Yes, I do. You believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Yes, I do. Can you prove it? No, I can't. How do you know that it happened? I guess I'll just wait till I get to heaven and ask Jonah. Well, what if Jonah ain't there? He said, then you ask him. <laughs> so we're going to find out decisions someday. In verse 37, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Christ says, this is not a, a difficult decision. Trust me. Gain eternal life, even if you have to lose your life. What was it that Jim Elliott said? The man is no fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. In verse 38, why is there going to be a recompense? Because in verse 38, you notice there, verse 38 begins with the word for, hoti, H-O-T-I. It means, let me explain what I just said. How do we know that your decisions someday are going to come to, a, to an opening or to a brick wall? Because in 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, meaning that you had to make a decision for Christ, of him and his word, are going with your buddies over here. Whoever is ashamed of me and goes after his buddies, the Son of Man, Messiah, will be ashamed of him. Meaning, you didn't want to know me, I will not acknowledge who you are. When? When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you telling me, Tom, that this Jesus who died it's going to rise from the dead, go to heaven, save the people, and come back someday and have recompense on those who rejected him. That's exactly what I'm saying. Do you all believe that? He's coming back. That's why the book of Revelation says seven times, blessed is the man who reads this book. Because you have to know how the narrative is going to end so you can make your decision. And so he says, I'm coming back. 
and we're going to separate the chaff and the wheat. We're going to separate the sheep and the goats someday. Well, in chapter 9, in verse 1, uh, immediately in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that narrative in verse, till verse 38 is followed by the transfiguration. Every time the transfiguration occurs, it always follows. You're going to have to die, and you're going to have to wait and hope in what you don't see. When you flatline on that gurney and you start, the darkness closes in, you're going to be trusting in something. Is that correct? You're trusting that on the other side of that dark, you are going to see, today you'll be with me in paradise. Amen? We've never seen it yet, but you're going to do that. You're going to trust that he's going to be there, just like with Stephen, just like the thief on the cross. Paul said to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. In this earthly tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. We know we're going to stand before him. So Jesus, having just told these men, you're going to probably go to the end of your life, and you're going to have to suffer and you're going to die holding to a promise. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to let you do a little time travel. I'm going to send you through the wormhole. And I'm going to let you see the kingdom of God before it occurs. I'm going to show you God in his glory, me in my glory, the Old Testament law, the prophets in my glory, New Testament believers in my glory, even one that gets raptured, Elijah, who goes to heaven without dying. I'm going to let you see them. You're not going to have to take it by faith. You're not going to have to memorize it and quote it. You're going to see it, and I'm going to burn it into your eyes. As a matter of fact, Peter, I'm going to scare the pajabbers out of you. That's a Greek word, P-A-J-A-B-B-A-S, pajabbers. I just made it up. Okay. And so chapter 9, verse 1, this always follows this volatile annunciation of the meta-narrative. He was saying to them, truly I say to you, there's some of you, Peter, James, and John, who are standing here who will not taste death. Take up your cross. They will not taste death until they see. I'm not just going to tell you about it. You're going to see it. The kingdom of God after it has come with power. I'm going to show you, Dr. Pentecost at the seminary used to say this is a little peephole where you look through it and you see the kingdom. Is there another fellow in the Bible that's going to have to face death? As a matter of fact, it is said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And before he dies, God shows him his glory. As a matter of fact, he catches him up to third heaven where he sees things that a man is not permitted to speak. Who's the man? Paul. He had to go through such sufferings that God let him know this is waiting on you. Peter, James, and John. Peter's going to get crucified upside down in the form of an X. James is going to get beheaded. John is going to be placed on Patmos and he's going to die, the last of the apostles to die. 
I'm going to let y'all see where it's coming, what's on the way. And I'm sure as John sat on that island, he could have thought, I've seen him. I know where I'm going to be. I wish I could see a little bit more. Hello, John. I'm going to show you Revelation. All right. And so I'm going to show you the kingdom of God. Are there other two men in the Bible that get to go up on a high mountain and see God? Yes. Men that were going to go through great trial. One is named Moses and one is named Elijah. Come to the same mountain of Sinai and they see the glory of God. And this man, Peter, James, and John. So in absentia, you and I get to read about one of the first Christians who saw what you and I are going to see. In verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, leaders of the apostles, brought them to a high mountain, Mount Hermon, by themselves, and he was transfigured. It's the Greek word metamorphosis. Christ, when he became a man, he laid aside his glory, and he took the form of a bondservant made in the likeness of men, that God united him with humanity, and what you saw was one in whom there was no comely appearance, but he was the very son of God. On one occasion, you're going to get to see him. Here it is. He was transfigured and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can make them. See also Revelation 1, where John saw the resurrected Christ in glory and fell like a dead man. See Daniel chapter 7 where he saw the Son of Man in his glory and fell like a dead man. And now these men are going to get to see him. There was a glory, a brightness, unlike they had never seen. It is the Shekinah, the glory of God. Uh, when Paul was converted, Christ appeared to him in glory. And it said, because of the brightness of the appearance, he was blinded for 72 hours. Isn't that something? That it did something to his eyes. And when he was healed, scales fell off his eyes. That's why flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you were to try to enter into the kingdom of heaven like you are, you ever seen a bug zapper? <laughs> You'd be a bug zapper. Uh, God is going to have to raise us and equip us. Even if you die now, he's going to have to, it says there will be a robe given to them until they are raised from the dead. There's an, a corporeal state that God's going to let us be in so that we can enjoy standing in the midst of the sun. All right. And so in verse four, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. Why Moses and Elijah? What does Moses represent in the Old Testament? Law. What does Elijah represent? Prophets. What are the law and the prophets? That which witnessed to Christ. And so you're seeing here the entire corpus of divine revelation. Moses, prophets, Jesus, apostles. And John, who's going to write the book of Revelation. You've got Genesis to Revelation. You've got the glory of God, the magnificence of the Son, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, 
adoring him. That's called the kingdom of God. Whenever you die, or as my anatomy prof used to call it, whenever you gork, okay, and you stand and look about in heaven, I think you might think to yourself, where have I heard of this? At the transfiguration. There's the glory, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and there is Jesus. And there is the Father and his delight in him. Well, Elijah and Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. Would you like to know what they're talking about? We know. I'll show it to you. If you'll look at Luke in chapter 9, Luke includes something, probably because he does his gospel by personal interviews. And as a result, Luke has an embellishment and a uh, knowledge of things in the cracks that nobody else has. Luke 9. Verse 30. And two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory. What do you look like whenever you die and go to heaven? You are in glory. And so they appear in glory. Or literally, they appear in splendor. And they were speaking of his departure, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What does that mean? They're speaking of his departure. What is his departure? It's the cross. It's Calvary, where he will die, rise from the dead, and ascend. As a matter of fact, you know what the word departure is here? If you're going to transliterate it, it's spelled E-X-O-D-U-S. Exodus, hodas, away, exit, away out. He speaks of his exodus. It's the same word that Simon Peter uses about his death, that I know that at any time after my exodus, exodus is when you leave the place of bondage and you go to the promise. That's why so often you'll see little Baptist churches out in the country called Greater Exodus Baptist Church. That's when we're all going to go home. And so they spoke to Jesus of his exodus. What did Peter call his exodus? Lord, this will never happen to you. They call it something he will accomplish. When we talk about the death of Christ and the adequacy of it, what do we talk about? We speak about the finished work of Christ. This is not an accident or a defeat or a tragedy. This is an accomplishment by God. And so these men in heaven have their theology straight. And they talk to Jesus about what he is about to do. You know why? Because the reason that Moses and Elijah, Old Testament men, are in heaven is that they believed in the mercy of God that would show itself in the death of the Lamb. Could Moses and Elijah be in heaven if Christ were not going to die. No, they could not be. And so they're going to continue in heaven because Christ will go down from this mountain to his death. And so if you were Moses and Elijah, what would you talk about? 
Jesus, make sure you don't miss that cross. Because <laughs> that's the only reason I'm here. What do people in heaven want to talk about? The cross. So don't miss it. So go back here to Mark. That's what they're talking about. And in verse 5, I love what one text says. Peter, not knowing what to say, said, open mouth, insert foot, <laughs> Simon Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Meaning, let's don't leave. You remember where Paul said he was called away to third heaven and I saw things a man is not permitted to write? You know why? Because we would have been of no earthly good. If we knew too much, all we'd do is just sit around and wait. He said in verse 5, it's good for us to be here. Let's don't leave. Let us make three, uh, literally, tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer because he had become terrified. What was his mistake? Thinking that Moses, Elijah, and Christ could be equal together. In other words, he had Christ plus the law. God says, excuse me. God always speaks up whenever Jesus is in any way lowered to a place he shouldn't be. It's hard to be Peter, you know. Jesus rebukes him. God rebukes him. Yeah. I'm sure Moses said, get out of the way. He didn't know what to answer. He'd become terrified. And a cloud formed. All of a sudden, the Shekinah glory descends around them, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud. And now, just as on Sinai, God speaks. This is my beloved son, Peter, you who are trying to group him with the law and the commandments. Y'all ever read the book of Galatians where false teachers were saying Christ doesn't save, it's Christ plus Moses? And Paul writes Galatians and says, no, no one stands with Christ. It is Christ alone. That's why if I want to know you're a Christian and I ask you, if you died now, where would you go? And you say heaven. And I say, what would you say to God if you stood before him? And I watch you. And if you take one nanosecond to hesitate, if you in any way try to mention your life, I will stand back and say, cursed be thou. because you're trusting in Christ plus something else. Amen? Don't you do it. God wants to talk about Christ. Paul wants to talk about Christ. And that's it. And so, a voice came out of the cloud. Now, I'm going to show you here that God memorizes Scripture. Safe verse. He quotes scripture. This is my beloved son. That's from Psalm 2. Listen to him. That's from Deuteronomy 18. There's another verse that is included in Matthew. And it goes like this. 
This is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. What God quotes, and it's interesting, God doesn't have to quote scripture. Everything God says is scripture. But God went to the Bible that their trust might be in the scripture. You with me? God wants you to know your Bible. Psalm 2. Why have the nations gathered together against the Lord and his Messiah? He who sits in the heavens laughs and mocks at them in derision. And then he will say, this is my beloved son. This is not just a king. This is my son. Today I have begotten thee. Meaning today you will begin your reign and I declare you to be the rightful king, the son of the father. Psalm 2. Thou art my son. He is God. And so God quotes that from Psalm 2. This is not Moses and Elijah. We're talking about the son of God. And then in the book of Isaiah, God speaks about Messiah in Isaiah 42, 1. And he says, behold, my servant in whom is all my delight. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. As a matter of fact, there are six different sermons in the book of Isaiah called the servant sermons where God exalts this man who is in perfect obedience to him. What chapter in Isaiah do you think would be the chief servant chapter? 53. And so God says, Isaiah 42, this is literally the son of my delight, the servant of my delight, and whom is all my favor. He is the perfect man. Psalm 2, this is my son, he is God. Isaiah 42, this is my son, he is the perfect man. He will obey me to the point of death, even death on a cross. When he faces torture, he will say, not my will, but thine be done. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is a man right here. He is man, I'm sorry, he is God, and he is man. What do we call that in theology? The incarnation. And then I want to show you when he says, listen to him and him alone. I want to show you this text. Look at Deuteronomy 18. Go back to that clean section of your Bible. Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to do a little Bible study methods with you and show you what's called uh, repetition. Whenever Israel goes into the land, Deuteronomy 18, 9, when you enter the land, which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Circle that, make it on a t-shirt, and give it to your kid when he goes off to his freshman year. When you go down to Austin, don't you learn to imitate the Austonians. All right? Because they are bizarre. He says, don't you imitate the pagan. Verse 9. The pagans have numbers of ways they're going to try to communicate with God. 
these people in verse 10, 11, and 12, and various people on the West Coast. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, who uses divination, witchcraft, interprets omens, a sorcerer who casts a spell, a medium, a seance, a spiritist, one who calls up the dead. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out. They are failures. Let me stop just a second. These are all pagan methods of establishing contact with the great beyond. Man is always trying to establish contact with God to have some kind of absolute. And he will do it from himself into heaven, trying to use some kind of bizarre way to communicate. And God says, I don't want you to mess with that. I'll tell you why. When you see a guy that starts messing with this stuff, with Ouija boards, with seances, with whatever, he's in an area that he, his compass starts spinning. He has no way to navigate it. True story, there are occasions up in the Northwest and those thick, thick, I'm sorry, the Northeast, and those thick forests when you're driving down one of those roads and there are a wall of trees on either side of you because these hardwoods have grown so close together and the trunks go up and then they leaf out, but it's a wall of trees. There are a lot of guys that will stop and they'll want to maybe go to the bathroom or do something and they'll pull over in a culvert and they'll walk into those trees and they'll go, boy, look at all these trees. And then they turn around. You ever had vertigo where all of a sudden you can't get your bearings? Where did we come from? And every decision you make, it's like being in a labyrinth. It's in a maze. And every decision you make takes you further and further away. And they have found guys a quarter of a mile off the road dead because they got into that maze. So make a note the next time you're in New Hampshire. Okay, don't wander off the road because that happens to you when you close your Bible and start trying to figure out who God is on your own. You get into an area you've got no business being in. So God says, those guys tried it and they got kicked out of the land because Ouija boards don't give you holy operatives. Are you with me? Seances do not give you 10 commandments. And so he says, don't y'all do it. Don't step into it. The pagan has his way of communicating. It's not our way. Paul said, let no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. You be careful when you start reading Sartre, Camus, and whoever. Uh, your compass can spin. In verse 13, you'll be blameless before the Lord. Those nations which you shall dispossess, What's the next word you got? The verb. What's it say? Listen. They listen to those who practice witchcraft. As for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do. 15. Here's who you're going to listen to. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. God doesn't communicate by mysticism and witches and divination and by the owl's hoot and by the, scorp the uh, spider's web, he's not going to tell you things like that. He is going to make himself known. 
You're not going to find him. He's going to find you. And I will inspire a human called a prophet, and that prophet will speak. The way that you know he's a prophet is verse 19. It'll come about that whoever will not listen to the words we shall speak uh, in his name, I'll require it of him. The prophet who speaks presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, speaks in the name of other gods, shall die. 21, you say in your heart, how will we know? 22, when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, the thing does not come about and come true, then the prophet has not spoken. There was not a prophet training program in Israel, okay? He has to be perfect. He cannot not be true. And so I'm going to raise up a divinely inspired revelation called a prophet. Later on, we will inspire him not just to speak, but to write. And that will be called scripture, script. And so that's the way I'm going to communicate with you, is by essentially revelation and by the Bible. You dig? I'm going to communicate by the Bible. That's my way. Well, in verse um, 15, are you with me so far? Okay. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, and here's the ultimate prophet, a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. He's going to raise up a Jew, and you shall, what's the next word? Listen. The witch don't listen. The seance guy, don't listen. The prophet, listen. Verse 16, this is according to all that you ask on the day of the Lord at Sinai or Horeb, on the day of the assembly. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore lest I die. And God said, they have spoken well. Israel said at Sinai, don't let God speak anymore. It's too terrible. Moses, would you go walk up there and tell us what he said and then come down and relay it to us? And God said in verse 17, I like that attitude. I like it when a human being is afraid of me. And he looks to the man that I designate as true and listens to him infallibly. I like that attitude. What's the Bible say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. God says, I like that. Y'all show this to your kids. What is the attitude God longs to see in his kids? Reverence for who he is. And so, in verse 18, I'm going to answer that prayer. God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. How is Jesus like Moses? Moses said, don't you come in front of God. You'll be bug zapped. You let me stand as the mediator, and he'll tell me what he wants you to know. Then I'll come down to you, and I'll tell you. And when you want to be prayed for or offer sacrifice, don't you walk up there. I'll go offer it for you. It's called a mediator. And so, I will raise up a prophet from among their brethren like you, and I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak. This final mosaic-like prophet, I'm going to put my words in his mouth. You know what we could call him? The Logos. 
He is going to be the Word made flesh. Whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I'll require it of him. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, I'm going to be ashamed of him. God says, you reject this man and you reject me. This cross is the tip of the iceberg. When you reject him, you reject all that he said about me. And it is ipso facto, you reject all of heaven. It's not just that you reject a carpenter. You reject the Logos. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten Son of God. And in verse 19, I'll require it of Him if you reject Him. Now, stop just a second. Mount of Transfiguration. Let's make three tabernacles, Moses, Elijah, and you. God said, no. This one is my beloved son, Psalm 2, in whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42. Not Moses, not Elijah, neither one of them are God, and neither one of them didn't have sin in his life. They both did. This is my beloved son, Psalm 2, and whom I'm well pleased, Isaiah 42. Then God said, listen to him. Where did God get that? Deuteronomy 18. He is God. He is man. He is prophet. Listen to him. To say that he is God, he is the Lord. To say that he is a perfect man, he is Jesus. To say that he is the mediator, he is the Christ. And that is his title, the Lord Jesus Christ. My son, my man, my word. Now, did Peter understand this? Well, let me show you something. Take a look at 2 Peter and chapter 1 and we conclude. How did Peter interpret the transfiguration? And 2 Peter 2, in verse 15, I will be diligent that at any time after my death, my exodus, you will be able to call these things to mind. I want you guys, even when I am dead, to remember what I spoke to you. And the reason I want you to is because in 16, he's coming back. Jesus is going to return. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Incidentally, does Peter in his initial discipleship of these Gentiles include eschatology? Yes, he does. He teaches them about the second coming. In verse 17, here's how I know that it's not a cleverly devised tales. Because when he received honor and glory from God the Father, Mount of Transfiguration, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What event is Peter speaking about? Transfiguration. And here's the reason for the transfiguration in 19. So, 
we have the prophetic word about the second coming made more certain. That's why we have the transfiguration. Boys, I'm going to die. You're going to die. All God's children are going to die. But I'm coming back. Are you really? Let me show you. But we know verses. I'm going to give you something that makes them more certain. You ever use a nail punch? Put that nail in, put that punch, boom. It'll never come out. Verse 19, the prophetic word is made more sure to which you'll do well to pay attention. Deuteronomy 18, whoever listens to him and you listen to him as a lamp shining in the dark place. Question, what's the dark place? It's this world. Are y'all noticing that we're not the home team anymore? It's a dark place. And he says in 19, this is our lamp, the prophetic word of the coming. He's coming back. You pay attention until the day you don't need your Bible. When the day dawns and the morning star arises, that's the new day when Christ returns. Amen. He's coming back. Father in heaven, this is all part, we know, of the training of the 12. You gave them insight, you gave them authority, and you gave them a very dark promise that you're going to have to mount a cross and say no to yourself. And you're going to have to go public in your faith. And you may be hated and you may be killed, but you remember we're going to win. The gates of Hades will not conquer us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We're going to win. That we have the privilege of past posting, of insider trading. And I'm going to put all my chips on Christ. As John said, come soon, Lord Jesus. As Peter said, Hasten the day of God. If there's one gambler here, show him the harshness of his soul as an ante that he cannot win. Amen.